Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve, and the rest of the music and media team. You guys give it up for them. There's a lot, a lot of time and effort and work that goes into what happens up here on Sunday mornings, and so we are so thankful for Steve and the rest of the, the music and media team and all that you guys do uh, to lead us in worship every Sunday morning. So thank you guys uh, for leading us again faithfully uh, this Sunday morning. If you guys have your Bibles, Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have Bibles, there should be some in the seats in front of you, and there will also be on the screen. Acts chapter 19. So we're going to be continuing along in our series through the book of Acts as we are uh, in this last part of the book of Acts looking at what does it look like to be a church that is sent to the nations? What does it look like when the Holy Spirit empowers and sends out a church? What, what does it look like to be the church of God? What is God calling us to be? What is God calling us to look like and live like? And so we are looking at that here in the book of Acts and uh, Acts 19 beginning in verse 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts 19, beginning in verse 1, it says this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through, in, through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, that your word sharpens us and shapes us and molds us, God, that you remind us of these glorious truths in your word, God, that you communicate to us through scripture, the God who created all things worthy of all honor and glory and praise, God, you speak to us through your word, God, that you, you actually love us enough to have a conversation with us, to, uh, to, uh, to speak things in our language, to speak things in our uh, in ways that we can understand, God, you, you speak to us through your word. So I pray, Father, that today we would grow in the image of Jesus because of our time in the word. God, that you would mold us and shape us and conform us to Christ's likeness. God, I pray that, that we would leave here better than when we came because of our time in the word, because we have heard from you this morning. God, give us ears to hear what you're saying in a heart that is ready to apply it. We love you and praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Something that I want to impress upon each and every one of you, something that I hope that you know and understand, and is this, this truth, this reality that I hope that you get, and it's the idea that we, uh, in our community, we do not live in a largely Christian community. Here in Roanoke and the surrounding area, we do not live in a largely Christian community. Now, now don't get me wrong. Our, in, our community is largely influenced by Christianity but it is not largely impacted by Christianity. There are a lot of Christian influences in our culture and our society, but there are a lot of people, the majority of people in our community, are not living any differently because of their relationship with the Lord or so-called relationship with the Lord. There is a lot of influence, not a lot of impact 
Christianity in our community. Based on the most recent statistics that we can give, and these were pre-COVID, and so the numbers are probably much worse now, but uh, pre-COVID, in a five-mile radius of this building, there were over 60,000 lost people. In a five-mile radius, I mean, that's within a very difficult jogging radius, right? But within that radius, there are 60,000 lost people. Those same statistics show that there are over 60% of the people, just in a five-mile radius of this building, over 60% of the people near us in our community are not involved in church at all. And over 50% of those have negative opinions about the church, negative opinions about Christianity. That means that on average, let's say you have two neighbors, one... uh, two next-door neighbors and one across the street. On average, in our community, statistics show that one of them goes to church, one of them says they go to church, probably a mega church in our area, but never actually does, uh, and, and Christianity has no influence on the actual way that they live their lives, and one of them has negative opinions about the church entirely. Like, that is not a, 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 a community that is largely Christian. And yet, so many of us feel like and think that, that we live in a Christian community, we live in a Christian society and take for granted that the people around us are saved and know Jesus, but the community around us as a whole is largely lost, largely not impacted by the kingdom of God, largely not impacted by the relationship with Jesus. And if you look around us, materialism is rampant in our community. People drive the nicest cars, they buy the nicest houses, they get the latest and coolest uh, toys and gadgets partly because they want to be, be filled and fed by these things, thinking that, that th- some of these things, these, these, uh, these toys, these assets, that these are going to fill them up and give them life. And if not the actual assets themselves, then, uh, then maybe the comments that we get on them, maybe the, 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 the head turns that we get while we're driving or the, the, the looks that we get when someone walks into the house, like, like those looks, maybe those comments and those looks, that affirmation we get from other people is going to give us a little bit of satisfaction and joy. At the same time, our community is extremely busy. The people around us are filling up their calendars. We are filling up our calendars with things that largely will not matter forever. I mean, between work and our kids' social uh, uh, extracurricular activities and our side hustles and our hobbies and trips, like our calendars are filled up with things that are not going to matter forever, and there's very little time in there to have any impact uh, any, any, any room for a relationship with the Lord, any room for a, a life that's been impacted by the gospel, any room for a life that is living for eternity today, as our mission statement says. So, so our community around us is largely lost. And the question that I want to ask is, do we have the capability to do anything about that? Do we have the, uh, the power and the ability to make any difference at all in that? Let me ask you that as an individual. Do you have any power or capability to make any difference, any dent at all in the way that our community lives, the way that our community looks? I mean, we're talking about the entire community. Right, our culture, where we live, like like the the, the area around us, sixty thousand lost people. We're talking about huge numbers and and big goals. Do we have any power as individuals to make any difference at all in our community? And do we, as a church, have any power or any capacity to make any difference? I mean, we can look around. It probably is not surprising to any of you. We're not the biggest church. I really hope you've recognized that. It'd be a little weird if you're walking in here thinking it's a mega church everywhere, like, whoa. You know, like, it's, we're, not, we're not the biggest church. 
And so do we, as a church, our side, have the power and the capability to make any difference in our community? We don't have the budget or the programs as maybe a bigger church. Do we have to wait until we get, those bu- until we get that budget or we get those programs or we get those ministries to make any impact? Do we have any power, any capability to make any difference on the world around us, on the, on the community in which we live? Paul, when he arrives in Ephesus at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, he encounters a group of believers. And if he were to ask them that question, do you have any power to make a difference, the the correct answer for them would be no. They had no power and no ability to make any lasting difference on the people around them. Pick up with me, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Now, I know you guys pay a lot of attention to every sermon that I've ever preached, and you probably remember every detail of everything. Um, But uh, if you remember last week, uh, we ended on verse 18 of chapter 18. Uh, And so there's a little chunk of chapter 18 at the end that we didn't cover, that we kind of skipped over. And the reason that we didn't talk about, about it last week is all that Luke does at the end of chapter 18 is give us information that kind of sets up chapter 19. And so at the end of chapter 18, we follow Luke, uh, we follow Paul. If you remember, uh, at the end of last week, Paul had been in Corinth for over a year and a half, preaching the gospel, starting a church there in Corinth, getting it off the ground. And so he'd been there a year and a half ministering to the city of Corinth. And then he leaves, he heads south, and he's on his way to Antioch. Antioch is the city that he left from initially. It's his kind of home base as a missionary. And so he's going back there. It's been years since he's been there. So he's going to go back and just give him a report about all that he's doing. So he's on his way back to Antioch. And on his way back to Antioch, one of the, uh, he's traveling by boat. And one of the stops that they have to make is Ephesus. And think of it as just kind of like it's a little pit stop. That's all it is. They just have to, to restock, resupply, drop some people off, and head back down to Antioch. Now, what Paul does, being Paul, is when he, he arrives in Ephesus for this little pit stop, he gets off the boat, goes into the city, finds the nearest synagogue, and starts sharing the gospel. Now, I just think about that for a second. Like, that's the, that's the attitude that I would love to have and that I would love every single one of you to have. I mean, think about a road trip. Right? I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of road trip person that's like no stops. You know, like we're gonna get where we're going. I have a destination, we're gonna get there. And so, but think about a road trip. Sometimes you have to stop and get gas. Sometimes you have to stop for bathroom breaks. Now, most of the time, for most of us, when we stop on a road trip, what happens? We get out. We take care of what we need to take care of. We get back in the car and we go because we have a place that we need to go. Right? Paul has a place that he needs to go with Antioch, but instead of and in this little pit stop. He looks up and says, hey, this is a great opportunity to share the gospel. And so he walks out, he goes and he finds lost people, and he goes and tells them about Jesus. That's a guy who is deeply impacted by the gospel, right? That's a guy who knows that there's hope and joy and eternal life in Jesus, and he wants other people to know that. So he took every opportunity he could to go share the gospel. So he walks in to the synagogues, he shares the gospel. There's no indication at the end of chapter 18 if anyone believed. We don't know if anyone became a Christian, but we do know that uh, the Jews who were there in the synagogue, they asked Paul. They said, hey, this is great. Can we hear more about this? And Paul goes, actually, I, I need to get, my, get on the boat. I need to get to, to Antioch, but I, I'll come back. And so Paul leaves, uh, with, and the people were interested. They'd heard the gospel. No one had believed yet, but they were interested. After him, uh, at the end of chapter 18, there's a guy named Apollos. Luke introduces us to this guy. And Apollos is this brilliant guy, this, this great speaker. And he's a guy who'd become acquainted with the, the preaching of John the Baptist. 
Now, John the Baptist is the guy who came before Jesus. And, all, and John the Baptist's message was that the Messiah is coming, the, the Savior, the Christ. He is on the way. And so all of us need to repent and get ready for the Messiah. In fact, he names him in the book of John. John the Baptist says, the Messiah is Jesus. He is on the way. He's coming. We need to repent. We need to get ready. So Apollos heard that message. He's like, great. And he goes around the Mediterranean proclaiming the message that the Messiah is coming. We need to repent and get ready. And so, uh, so Apollos is preaching that message for years throughout the Mediterranean. And he arrives in the city of Ephesus, and he's preaching to the Jews. Well, one of the people in Ephesus is Priscilla, with, along with her husband Aquila, who are friends of Paul. They live in Ephesus. They're Christians. They hear Apollos Telling the, telling the Jews there that the Messiah is coming, we need to repent and get ready. And they say, hey, they pull him aside. Like, hey, this is great. We love you. You're doing a great job. Really good speaker. Uh, but just quick thing, the Messiah already came. <laughs> His name is Jesus. He died. He rose again. There's salvation in him. So instead of just telling people to repent and get ready, you should probably tell people to put their faith in Jesus, right? So they, they pull him aside, they tell him that, he's excited, so he gets baptized, he places his faith in Jesus, and then he leaves to go proclaim the gospel in another city. That's what sets up chapter 19. So uh, chapter 19, after Paul makes his way to Antioch, he, he tells them what he's been doing, then he makes, his, makes the rounds again and, and works his way back up to Ephesus. It says that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed inland to the country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. So there in Ephesus, he finds people that claim to know Jesus. And this is shocking to Paul because, again, all that he's done is briefly tell them about Jesus. He doesn't know Apollos. He hasn't heard of Apollos. But here he just walks into Ephesus, and there are some Christians. I'm just waiting for him. No one he knows has planted a church there, but there are Christians. They're in Ephesus. And so he's a little surprised, but he's, he's found disciples there. And he says this. Uh, he asks what every rational person would ask. And verse 2, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I don't know about you, uh, but if I meet a group of Christians that I've never met for the first time, uh, I, I would probably ask a lot of questions. There are a lot of ones that would come to mind. This one probably wouldn't crack my top ten, you know. And it may just be the Baptist in me, but I probably wouldn't think to ask it at all. You know, like, like well, did you get the Holy Spirit? Like, was that also part of this? Like, I might ask them, well, what, well, what do you believe about this? Or what do you believe about that? I might ask them about... Uh, church, like what are your church services like? What do you believe about the church? But, but Paul goes straight, like the question that is burning on Paul's mind when he meets a group of Christians he's never met here in, in, in Ephesus, he asks them, Have, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Essentially, Paul is asking them a, a similar question to what I've asked each and every one of you. Do you have the power of God to make a difference in people's lives? Do you have the power of God to have an impact? Do you have the seal of God's power and approval in the Holy Spirit? They respond in verse 2. Uh, no. Uh, in fact, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, uh, they've probably heard of the Holy Spirit. It's a common Jewish idea. Nor, most likely, what they mean in this response is, no, we... We didn't know that we were supposed to receive the Holy Spirit. We didn't know that was supposed to be a thing. Now, this is setting off alarm bells in Paul's mind. Because here's a church that is completely powerless to make a difference. Here's a church that cannot do 
anything to impact their community for the gospel. Here's a church that cannot impact people's lives because they do not have the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a completely powerless and inept church, and it's sending off alarm bells in Paul's mind because every church throughout the book of Acts, every true church, every church that is founded on Jesus, every single church has the Holy Spirit. Every single group of believers that Paul has ever come across, that he's ever preached the gospel to, every single one of them has the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is setting off alarm bells in Paul's mind because here's a group of people, they're claiming to be Christians, they're claiming to know Jesus, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's taken aback, and notice what he says in verse 3. He says, then into what then were you baptized? Notice that that Paul is concerned (laughs) about the people, the Christians that he's facing. He said, well, what, what do you believe then? If you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't even know that you were supposed to receive the Holy Spirit, what do, you, what do you believe then? Notice the thing that sticks out to Paul about this church as being weird, as being wrong, as, as being a church that doesn't believe the right things is the fact that they don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not moving in and through them. That is what strikes Paul as weird. Like if you and I were to look at churches and to say this is a true church, this is not a true church, what we would probably do and rightly do is we would look at their doctrine and say this is what you believe. We might look at their character and say this is how you act. We might look at their actions in the community. This is how you go out with the gospel. This is how you go out and serve. We might look at all of these markings to see whether or not this is a true and right church. But what does Paul look at? He says, do you have the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit of God moving in your church? Is the Spirit of God moving among you believers? Because the fact that he's not here, the fact that he's not part of this, the fact that you don't have the Holy Spirit, that's immediate alarm bells saying that you don't believe the right things. And so what then were you baptized? He says. I say, well, into John's baptism. So now Paul understands the issue. This is a group of people who had heard Apollos before Apollos became a Christian. <laughs> they had listened to Apollos in, uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the synagogue. They'd heard what Apollos was saying, and they believed. They believed that the Messiah was coming. They probably even believed that the Messiah was Jesus. And so they had repented, and they were waiting for their Savior to come. But what they didn't know, because Apollos didn't know it at the time, was that Jesus had come. He died a death on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. And he rose again from the grave three days later to give you eternal life. They didn't know it. And so they, they may have looked like Christians. They may have on all the, the outward trappings. They may have been religious. They may have repented and said all of the right things. In fact, the, the, Luke even t- calls them here in the book of Acts disciples. Like they, on the outside, they were, they were Christians. But in reality, they didn't believe the one thing that you need to be a follower of Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus for salvation. They didn't trust in him for the hope of eternal life. They didn't believe in his death and his resurrection. They were baptized into John's baptism. So Paul, in verse 4, he begins to correct them. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So Paul corrects them and says, well, this is what John preached. In fact, John was pointing forward to Jesus. John was looking forward to the one who was to come. He was looking forward to the Messiah. So don't put your faith in John. Don't put your faith in John's message. Put your faith in Jesus. And he begins to share the gospel. 
that the one you need to believe in is Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for your salvation. He shares the gospel with them in verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized again. Because the first time, John's baptism, it was just a baptism of repentance. It, wasn't, it didn't mean anything. It, it didn't mean anything eternally. It was just them saying, all right, we're ready for the Messiah. Send him. Like, let him come. But this time, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They've said, I'm a follower of Jesus now. I've placed my faith and my hope and my trust in Jesus. And because of that, I'm going to get baptized and be identified with what Christ has done in my life. Be identified with the people of God. Be identified with the people who have placed their faith and hope in Jesus. And so they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is only the only time in the book of Acts where you get more than one baptism. It's the only time. But what that shows us is that... Uh, Baptism in the book of Acts regularly is meant to be something that happens after you place your faith in Jesus. It is something that is identifies you with the followers of Jesus. It's something that depicts what Christ has done in your life. That's what happens here. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So after they place their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be clear about two things. In the book of Acts, the, the Holy Spirit does not normally come with the laying on of apostles' hands, and it doesn't normally come with speaking in tongues and prophesying. Those happen at very specific times. It doesn't normally happen that there's a delay between when you place your faith in Jesus and when you get the Holy Spirit. That's not normal. Normally, in the book of Acts, as Paul has encountered in every church that he's ever been to up to this point in the, in the, church, in the, in the book of Acts, like when people place their faith in Jesus, they get the Holy Spirit. Like that's the normal scenario in the book of Acts. But there are a few times where it's, there's a delay. And then in that delay, the apostles come, they lay their hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit comes. But the reason that there's a delay is because every time there's a delay, God is teaching something to us He's teaching something to them, very, something very specific. Like he's letting us know that the Holy Spirit is coming <laughs> and that these people do get the Holy Spirit, right? So the only other times it happens is it happens when the first time that a non-Jew places their faith in Jesus. And there's a short delay, and then the Holy Spirit falls on them. It also happens the first time that anyone places their faith in Jesus outside the city of Jerusalem. Question is, do these people get to receive the Holy Spirit? Apostles lay their hands on them, Holy Spirit falls. So there's this delay specifically to teach us that, that there's something happening here. It's the same reason why there are very few times that the Holy Spirit is accompanied by speaking in tongues and prophesying. And it's, it happens every single time that it happens in the book of Acts to teach us that, uh, that the Holy Spirit really did come, right? where we need this really big, bold, outward sign that says the Holy Spirit has come and you cannot deny it. Right? It happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit falls for the very first time and the apostles are speaking in tongues and prophesying. Right? No one can deny it. The Holy Spirit has come. It happens again when the very first Gentile Christians, non-Jews, place their faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls and they prophesy and they speak in tongues. The Gentiles have the Holy Spirit. No one can deny it. It happens here again. The people who once followed John but have now placed their faith in Jesus, now they have the Holy Spirit when they place their faith in Jesus. 
And God is making it abundantly clear. They did not have the Holy Spirit until they placed their faith in Jesus. It didn't matter that they believed that Jesus existed. It didn't matter that they were baptized into John's baptism of repentance. It didn't matter that they called themselves Christians and that they lived righteous moral lives. They did not have the Holy Spirit until they placed their faith in Jesus. But as soon as they placed their faith in Jesus and were baptized into his name, they received the Holy Spirit. And notice what happens beginning in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading uh, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, some of the Jews there in the synagogue became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil about the way or about Christianity before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took, to the, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul is proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. They turn against him. They don't, they don't want to hear it anymore. And so Paul says, fine. He leaves the synagogue, and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. This is likely a lecture hall or a school or something where they are renting a space in order to have church. This is also a fun thing to point out uh, that there are people that say, well, we need house churches. That needs to be the way that we do it because that's how the early church did it. They always met in houses. Uh, well, here's, a, here's an example in the book of Acts of a church renting a space and having, <laughs> having a church services in the hall of Tyrannus. That one's free. Um, just a little extra point there. They're all free. I don't want to give the, the podcast listeners a feeling like I'm charging by the point in the sermon. Um, but, uh, but they meet uh, in the hall of Tyrannus uh, every week, for uh, every single day, for two years. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So after being in the hall of Tyrannus for two years, these, these little Christian group, remember, how many were there initially? Twelve. Twelve believers and Paul. And after meeting for two years in the hall of Tyrannus, it says that all of Asia, the, the region of Asia, the province, which is about a third of Turkey today, that whole region had heard the gospel from this group. The word of God had spread. Churches were being planted. Missionaries were being sent out. Pastors were being raised up and sent out from this group of believers here in in the city of Ephesus. Like, what further proof do you need that the Holy Spirit was working in the church there at Ephesus? That in just two years, a group of 12 people, as it says earlier in the book of Acts, these 12 people turned the world upside down and they spread the word of God, the gospel throughout the region of Asia, planting churches. Two years is all it took. Like the Holy Spirit empowered this little group of believers to deeply and profoundly impact the city of Ephesus and the world around them with the gospel. And the entire world was changed. That entire section of the globe was deeply impacted because the Holy Spirit had fallen upon this group of believers. When they were just baptized into John's baptism without the Holy Spirit, they were completely powerless to do anything to change the world around them. But when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they began to reach the people around them with the gospel. And in just two years, the little group of 12 people had reached the whole region of Asia. This is what I want us to see this morning. A church built on Jesus is a church empowered by the Holy Spirit. A church built and founded on the gospel is a church that has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to reach the people around us with the gospel, to glorify God in the world around us. 
the two things we need to do with this information. The first half is that we need to build our church on Jesus. And as individuals, we need to build our foundations on Christ. As good as John the Baptist was, as moral as he was, as, as great as his message of repentance was, his message did not save anybody. His message could not provide life, it could not provide hope, and it could not provide an avenue for the Holy Spirit to work, to, to, to come and to move and to live inside of someone's life. Nothing is worth building our lives on besides Jesus. Nothing is worth staking our foundation. Nothing is worth moving forward for anything other than Jesus Christ. So many of us have built our lives on foundations of, of materialism, staking our entire existence on the bank account and the things that we've owned. And that is exactly what we're living for. That's what we're hoping will provide joy in life. But can I tell you that nothing in this world is going to save you. And nothing in this world provides value and life like Jesus does. So many of us have trusted in being religious and checking off the boxes and being good people and going to church and reading our Bibles and memorizing verses and, and just expecting God to love us because we're better than the next guy. But can I tell you that your religion, your checkboxes, your goodness cannot save you. It's not powerful. There is no life in legalism and religion. There's only life in Jesus. So we need to build our foundation on Christ. Christ needs to be the one that captures our attention, that captures our life, and we need to place our faith in him and trust in him for salvation. As an individual, build your foundation on Jesus, and we as a church must be built on Jesus Christ. Anything else means that we're not a church. If we gather for any other reason, it means that we're not gathering for Christ, and it means that we're not a church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that you cannot build on any foundation other than Jesus for a church because that has to be what unites us. We have to gather because of Christ, because the gospel is what propels us. That has to be at the forefront of everything that we do. We when we sing, we have to sing because we want to glorify Jesus. When we gather in small groups and we talk about scripture and we, we talk about the gospel, when we think over the word of God, when we do those things, it has to be because we want to learn more about Jesus and follow him. When we care for one another and we encourage one another and we share with one another and we serve in the church, it has to be because we want to bring glory and honor to Jesus' name. The gospel has to be what guides us. It has to be what defines everything about us because we have to be a church that is built on Jesus and nothing else. Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. Because he's the only one worthy of glory and honor and praise. And he's the only one that can save. We must build our foundation on Jesus. And when we do that, church built on Jesus is a church empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the second part of that is live in the power of the Spirit. Let me ask it again. Do you have the power and the capability, the ability to make an impact on the people around us? To reach the people around us with the gospel? 
And the answer is a resounding yes. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you are built on Christ, and if we as a church are centered on Jesus with the gospel at the forefront, then we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. So live in that power. As a church, we don't need to wait until we have a better budget or better programs. Those things are great. And praise the Lord when you have them. Praise the Lord. Uh, those things can be used for the glory of God. But we are not hamstrung until we get them. We have the power of the Holy Spirit residing within us. We have the God who created all things and is holding all things together on our side. So act like you have power from God. Recognize that, that you have been empowered by God to reach the people around you, to glorify God in our world. So live in that power. Same thing is true for you on an individual level. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to have an impact in the world around you. You don't have to wait until you can clean some things up. You don't have to wait until you can learn a little bit more and just be able to answer questions better. Like all of those things are good. Living more righteously, being conformed to the image of Jesus, that is scriptural and that is good. Uh, it, learning more about God, being able to answer objections and questions better, that is good. We need to learn and grow and think, but, but you don't have to wait for those things to happen to make an impact because you're not doing it in your own power. You have the power of the Holy Spirit on your side. Build your foundation on Jesus and live in the power of the Spirit. Some of you this morning... What, what scripture is calling you to do is like the people who had only placed their faith in John's baptism. You need to place your faith in Jesus. You need to stop living as if the things around you in this world are going to give you life and they're going to satisfy. Stop living as if the things that you can see, the things that you can touch can provide power and life and joy and salvation for you. None of them can. Stop living like your morality, your goodness is going to please God. It won't. You need Jesus for salvation. You need to trust in Christ, his death and his resurrection for eternal life. So this morning, some of you, what the scripture is calling out to you to do is to place your faith in Jesus, to build your foundation for the very first time on Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And, and as we do that, I'm going to invite you to place your faith in Jesus. We as a church need to have at the core, as our foundation, Jesus Christ. It is tempting for me to, to think about strategies and to think about ministry programs and to, to think about ideas and to, and to move forward with those things and, and, and just assuming that those are going to be the right things to do. But let me tell you, a church built on me and my ideas is a church that is entirely inept and unable to reach people with the gospel. And it's a church that, that I wouldn't even want to be a part of. We have to be a church where Jesus is at the forefront and the gospel is what defines everything that we do. We need to be a church that has as its foundation Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we can go and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Actually reaching the people around us with the gospel. Everyone bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, you've never placed your faith and your hope in him, 
The Word of God is calling out to you this morning, crying out to you, saying, there is no life in anything else other than Jesus. There is no hope and joy and power and satisfaction in anything anything else other than Jesus. So this morning, if that's you, you've never trusted in Christ for salvation. You may have gone to church before. You may have been in church for decades. But you've never trusted in Jesus for eternal life. This morning is the morning where you can receive the power of the Holy Spirit, where you can go from death to life, where you can have everything change. second I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If that's you and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I would love for you to come up here. I want to just pray with you and we have people who would love to talk with you. There are people in the back who would love to talk with you uh, out in the lobby uh, or you can come up here and I pray with you. We have people who would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you the eternal life that is available in Jesus for for your love and your joy and your kindness. God, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us, for our salvation, that he rose again three days later to give us eternal life. God, I pray that we would have as our foundation the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. And God, as a church, fixed our eyes on Jesus. I pray that we would live in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't settle for this unempowered church that is going on and doing the same things that we've always never making an impact in our community. But God, I pray that we would be a church that is living in the power of the Spirit, yet that we would be a church that is not settling for anything less than reaching the people around us for the gospel and making a dent in the 60,000 lost people who do not know you in our community, making a dent in the culture that is not following you. God, I pray that we would be a church that is empowered by your Holy Spirit and we would go out and we would make a difference. That we would glorify you in our world. Father, we love you and we praise you. It is the precious Holy Name that we pray. Amen.